This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. We're currently studying the book of Jonah. This is our second week in this story about God's surprising grace through this prophet. Uh, last week we learned about Jonah the prophet. And, and as I mentioned last time, the, most of the prophetic books are a prophet being prophetic. But this is actually a story about a prophet who was not being prophetic. We remember from last time, Jonah is a prophet that doesn't need any introduction. Uh, he isn't given some flower. Uh, speech about who he is, and it's likely because everybody already knew who he was. He was called by God to speak the truth of God to the people of Nineveh. Uh, they were Assyrians. And so just in general, it's a helpful thing to remember that um, prophets speak to people for God, and priests speak to God for people. And Jonah is a prophet. And so he's supposed to be speaking to the people for God. But what does he do? He neglects that call. He resists what he's supposed to do. And partly he does this, we believe, because if we look through the account of uh, scriptures and we learn about Jonah as a person, what are his values? What are the things that are important to him? And the main place we learn about Jonah, apart from the book of Jonah, is in the second uh, Second Kings. We know there that Jonah is speaking boldly on behalf of the kings to advance and reset the boundaries of Israel through military power. Now, usually prophets will be speaking against the kings, like Amos and Hosea. They were calling out the injustice of the administration, but we see that Jonah is calling upon the military conquest. And so what's revealing to us is that there's, while the, the Israel is expanding its borders up against Assyria, they're trying to fight... There's something else going on within Israel that's not healthy. Uh, there are concerns about the spiritual status and the spiritual maturity of the country. And so it's also helpful to note, just from a historical standpoint, you know, we often talk about the people of God as the Israelites. Uh, that makes sense to us. But at this time in the nation of Israel, there were two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah, which is the family of Judah. Judah is where Jerusalem was, and Israel was the northern part. And they're the ones that are facing this battle. Uh, with the Assyrians who are coming in from the north. And Israel was not supposed to break off and form its own kingdom with its own capital, Samaria, but it did. That was part of their disobedience. And so the issue that Jonah is facing is that these Assyrians are pressing in, and, and we talked last week a lot about the Assyrians, and just what a ruthless uh, people. They've been described as a terrorist state. They're just ruthless when it comes to conquest and difficulty. And so the, the irony of Jonah is that here's Jonah who is this, he is a nationalist. He is proud of being an Israelite. He's saying, let's go expand our borders. God is calling him to the Assyrians as an act of mercy to communicate with the Assyrians that the coming judgment of God is on its way. And so it's an ironic thing for a guy who is so proud of his country to be asked to go and communicate God's mercy to the people that he despises. But we, what did we learn last week? What does he do? He doesn't respond in obedience. He gets on the run. 
and he goes down to Tarshish, which is towards Spain. It's the opposite direction of where uh, where he was supposed to go. He's on the run, and he's wanting to to get away to escape the the task that he that he has been called to do. Uh, and we talked last week about how it's the same when God calls us to do something that we don't want to do. We we don't. It doesn't make sense to us. Why would God ask me to do that? I, I just don't see that fitting into my life. So then we run. And some of us run away from God by getting rid of his commands and disobeying his word and just trying to run as far away from the commands as possible. But other times people run by acting as though they're really serving God with obedience and duty and diligence, but their heart is not really for God. It's merely just an act of obedience, but not to enjoy and love God. So there's two ways of running. Those are what we talked about. But the gospel of grace interrupts both of those, that running away from God's law or trying to find our life through our own righteousness through God's law. And Jesus, the true prophet, calls us back to live under grace, to walk in obedience to his law, but out of a love for God and not to run away from his commands. And so that's where we are today in the beginning of Jonah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word. This is Jonah 1, 3, part B. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest upon the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The word of God for the people of God. May be seated. What's the worst storm you've ever been in? I don't know the worst one, but I can think of a recent one, right? The great ice storm of 2022. It had about this much ice on the trees. The storm itself didn't seem like it was that big of a deal, but it ended up being a huge deal because of our power lines. Just a little bit of ice disrupted everything. And I don't know about you, but at my house, I realized, okay, wait a second. It's going to get cold. It's not bitter cold, but it's going to get cold and we have no power. So we've got to figure something out. We've got to do something. So I decided to drive up to Germantown Parkway where all those guys are out there selling wood. And I thought, I'm going to get some wood. Well, there weren't any guys on the road, but there's this one place uh, just kind of by that Lowe's where you can go and get wood. And it was just like a madhouse. Everyone was there getting wood. And I'm trying to figure out, like, who works here? Like, who gets paid for this wood? What's going on? Well, it turns out the guy who runs the wood pile wasn't there. So everyone was doing the honor system. People were like, oh, you got to call this guy or you just put some money in that box over there. But everyone was getting wood, and it was freezing, and I didn't have any gloves, and so I'm like trying to load these these logs that were kind of wet and just sort of icy and whatever. My hands were cold, and I'm loading this up because I realized if I don't have power, my house is going to be freezing. And it was. Right? You remember that? And you're like, what are you going to do? So the first day, so we have, our, our house has uh, these little doorways on in, in the area where the fireplace is. So I figured, well, I can get at least this room, this one room warm. We can spend the night in this room. It'll be warmer than the rest of the house. And it was. But it just, you go into survival mode, right? You're thinking, how are we going to function and do this? Like, we got headlamps on. We're walking around like this, you know, because at 5 o'clock, man, it's dark. And you realize there's no power. There, you, you walk into a room and you flip the lights and you realize, I'm wearing a flashlight on my head. Why am I flipping the light switch? There's no power. It's cold, even in that room. And if you walked into our kitchen, it was freezing. And yet, like two blocks away, people have power. And they're just like watching, uh, you know, watching basketball. 
I'm in survival mode thinking, how am I going to make it in this world? And other people are just like, you know, hey, what's going on? It's the same. Well, thankfully, we all survived it. And, but it's that moment of you're like, this totally disrupts my life. I had a plan. I was going to do something for the weekend. And instead, I'm really just trying to survive. And you go to the store and there's no bread anywhere. There's no toilet paper anywhere. Evidently, when the power goes out, people have to go to the bathroom a lot because all the toilet paper has gone. But you're in this moment of like, ah, I just, my life has been totally disrupted by this event that I have really no control over. You know that feeling. Well, this parallels the storms of life that we face. Maybe you're experiencing a financial crisis or a financial struggle that's inhibiting your ability to function in the way that you would normally like to function. Maybe you got to tighten the belt some. Maybe you have a health concern that has caused you difficulty. Uh, maybe it's something that is requiring more medicine, more doctor visits, more bills, or it's just an aggravation of daily pain that prevents you from doing the stuff that you want to do, being active, taking a walk, getting up, and just doing the normal, regular things that you would like to do. Maybe someone in your family is sick, and so you've been diverted to take care of them or to slow down in ways that are difficult. Uh, maybe there's a relationship in your life, within your family, within your neighborhood, at work or at school, that feels like a storm. Because when you encounter this person, everything gets disrupted. Things stop. Everything gets blown up and all over the place, like the yard furniture. Have you ever been in a hurricane? Like, I grew up in those. And just you go outside, and there's trees and branches everywhere. Well, when you encounter this person, it feels like there's trees and branches everywhere. You feel discouraged. You don't want to talk to anybody, much less the person that you're having the conflict with. You feel alone. You feel discouraged. Right, so we understand the physical storms that come and swirl around in the world, but we also get that this metaphor of the storms that we experience in life. Well, in this text, we see that Jonah is running away from the presence of the Lord, and we just kind of, you know, chuckled a little bit because you can't actually really do that. You can't get away from the presence of the Lord, but he's got great determination and conviction about getting away from what God has actually asked him to do. He pays the fee, he waits for the boat, he sails to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But verse 4 tells us, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest upon the sea. So if let's unpack this verse a little bit. This is the main focus for us this morning. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. First we see that it's the word Lord. And when the, if you're in your Bible, it's capitalized. That means it's the word, it's, it's uh, translated Lord as Yahweh, which is the covenant name of the Lord. It's the most profound and significant name. It's, it's a name that's so important to people. There are pockets of people all over the world that don't even say it. They don't even want to pronounce that word. It's that significant for them. But it signifies the holiness and the power and the sovereignty of the God who created everything. He's the creator of the universe. He's the God of the ages. He's the God of time and space. He's sovereign over all things. He controls every molecule in the universe. Psalm 107 says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. 
we see that the Lord controls the sea. And here in Jonah's story, he hurls a great wind, a mighty tempest. It's very descriptive language that we're reading. Notice how it's the Lord that sends the tempest. He hurls it. The world means to, to cast out or to send violently. Imagine if you've ever seen someone throw a javelin, right? They run down the path and they have their arms straight and they just throw it as hard as they can. The Lord has hurled this storm directly at Jonah and the men who were on the boat with him. And the storm that he hurls is a great wind, we're told. And the word for great is the same word that's used to describe the city of Nineveh in last week's passage, the great city. In chapter 3, we learn that Nineveh is three days' journey in breadth. That's about 60 miles around. If it was a, a great city and it was a great storm, then it's possible that this is a storm that's 60 miles around. That's not as quite as big as some hurricanes that can be two, three, four, five hundred miles across. But still, I read uh, on, the, on the internet this week that they have a thing in the Mediterranean Sea called Medicanes. And it's like a Mediterranean hurricane that exists in that region. And I don't know what the ship was on, the ship was like that they were on, but I doubt it was a ship. It was probably a boat. Imagine being in the midst of a sea when that kind of storm comes upon you. They must have been terrified. That movie, The, the Perfect Storm, that came out about 20 years ago, it's, the, it's the, the convergence of a hurricane and a nor'easter, and that ship uh, ends up sinking in the deep. You just think about these massive waves and the torrent of wind and the rain pounding down, that feeling of utter helplessness. This is the kind of storm that God hurls at Jonah. It's not just a random event. It's the Lord who hurls it at Jonah. This storm um, reveals the idea that's prevalent throughout the whole Old Testament. That every act of disobedience has some kind of storm that's attached to it. Some of those storms are bigger than others, but but this is an idea that comes with with Scripture. Now, now that's not to say that that you know every single storm is a result of someone's sin. Uh, you know, the entire book of Job refutes that. Job had things that happened to him that were not a result of what he was doing. But there is the reality that when we take actions to disobey God. When we disobey his word, we will experience distressing impacts in our own lives. And it's really simple, right? If you spend your whole life eating French fries and Big Macs, there's a good chance that you're going to experience heart disease at some point. If you have uh, champagne and caviar dreams on a Budweiser and a sardines budget, you're likely to have financial problems. If we aren't willing to forgive those who've hurt us, it'll be hard for us to have relationships because we're either going to be afraid of being hurt again or we're going to hold grudges that lead to isolation. 
If we fail to create a just society, crime and poverty will take over. And no amount of security, personal security, will protect us from the world around us. That's just the natural result of the decisions we make. And like I said, there is a pattern of where a storm happens in a person's life, and it's not their fault. But in this text, this morning, we're looking at Jonah and his decision to walk away from God's command and to not do what God has asked him to do and the resulting storm that comes along with it. And yes, there are storms that happen to us in life. And those storms aren't our fault. And we naturally begin to ask that question, well, well, why do good things, excuse me, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you heard that phrase? You maybe said it. Why do bad things happen to good people? We have to remember, if we look at the whole of Scripture, we have to understand the idea that we're not really good people. Right? The reason that the world is in a broken place is because of sin. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God's law, that first sin, they broke fellowship with God. Sin and disease and death came into the world. And as we, as people who have inherited Adam and Eve's sin, we also choose to break God's law. And the result of that is storms in our life, but it's storms in the culture. Because we're, if we're all a collection of sinners, then we create systems that cause damage to people. You could just as easily ask, why do good things happen to bad people? But today I'm not talking about things that are out of our control. Because those are that's a, that's a real thing. But it is a worthwhile thing, I think, to take a moment to consider, if I'm in the midst of a storm, even if it's one that I think is not of my own making, it's possible and wise to make to reflect on what's happening in my life. Is there something or some way that, that I've contributed to, to or even caused this storm that's taking place? Right, a good pilot monitors flight conditions to see how to fly around storms. A better pilot looks at the weather before going out that she can determine if the flight makes sense at all. And after surviving bad weather, the best pilots say, what could I have done differently to have avoided that situation altogether? So if I'm experiencing a storm in life, if I've got relational problems going on, if I have financial difficulties, if I have physical difficulties, is it possible that in some way I may have contributed to this storm in my own life? That's up to you and the Lord to discern together. But today, we know that this great storm that God has hurled at Jonah is because of his disobedience, because that's what the text is saying to us. God has a mission for him. It's a mission of mercy. But as I said, Jonah doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it. He's a proud Israelite, and his hatred for the evil Assyrians, while understandable, has blinded him to the God of compassion. He's blinded him to the ministry to which he's been called. God wants him to, in verse 2 it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This is a very clear call from God. It's an opportunity for the people of Nineveh, this wicked people, to hear about a God of mercy, to have the opportunity to be reconciled to this God. But the problem is Jonah is too clouded by his own disdain for those people that he can't see that somehow God could extend mercy to them. A recent Pew study came out um, regarding a growing number of Republicans and Democrats that are in agreement. I know it sounds like a surprise, but since 2016, Republicans and Democrats agree. They don't like members of the other party. 
they increasingly see people with differing political views as close-minded, dishonest, unintelligent, and even immoral. Among Democrats, 63% see Republicans as immoral, which is just, which is up 35% from six years ago. For Republicans, 72% see Democrats as immoral, which is up 47% in the same time frame. A survey from 2020 said that 4 in 10 would be upset if their child married someone from the other party. Just this survey. Now, it's not new that people disagree, right? What has, what is new or newer is how we view people with whom we disagree. And here's the thing, friends, Republicans, Democrats, independents, whatever you are, homeless political people. The Bible says that we're all far from God and broken in sin. And the Bible says it's much easier to see the sin of someone else than the sin of ourselves. It's easy for me to see how you're unfaithful or how they are unfaithful, but it's harder for me to see how I am unfaithful or how we are unfaithful. And see, when God gives me a command or gives you a command to, to love your neighbor, it's harder and harder to do because we don't see the other person in the same way that we see ourselves. Right? If we look at them and we think they're closed-minded, dishonest, unintelligent, and immoral, we're less likely to say, okay, well, God says love my neighbor, that I actually have to love my neighbor. Because we can do what Jonah does and says, well, they're such evil, bad, wicked people, they don't even deserve the mercy of God. And yet, God is calling us to love our neighbor, regardless of their political position, regardless of their uh, social position, regardless of their color or their race or their view on anything. We're called to love our neighbor. And see, it's hard because Jonah is getting this call from God that says, go to Nineveh. And instead of saying, yes, Lord, the covenant Lord of the Bible, right? Yahweh, how glorious it would be for me to be part of what it is that you are doing to restore these people who are so far from you back to yourself. What a great thing that, God, you would call me and invite me into that mission of ministry and mercy and grace. But instead, he says, I'm going to Tarshish. See, when God says, love your neighbor... What he's saying is, love that lefty, abortion-supporting, canceled debt-loving, gender-fluid neighbor. It feels impossible. When God says, love your neighbor, he says that righty, replacement theorist, QAnon-embracing, gun-toting, what the hell is wrong with this country? Neighbor. And it feels impossible. I know that what God is asking Jonah to do is different in a way. But we can see the parallels here, right? Because the other people are, whoever they are, stupid, dumb, lazy, ignorant, immoral. And yet God is saying, love those people. Those people in your neighborhood with the opposing sign. The people in your office that want to come and talk to you. And you're just like, oh no, here he comes. We're called to love that person. Now, loving people doesn't just mean not saying anything challenging to them. It means healthy debate and dialogue. But it means understanding and compassion. 
It means realizing that there are different ways to worship the same God and apply the truths of Scripture. It was interesting to me this week to see the responses uh, in the news, on Facebook, about uh, Biden's decision to cancel some debt. Right, so you've got strong opinions on on the different sides of this argument, right? And and even among Christians who are really opposed to one another on this matter. It's a complicated issue, for sure. But a, a an in, internet meme is not going to solve the problem. It's a difficult situation. So how do we engage, especially with people that you disagree with, say, help me understand how you're coming to that conclusion. I can see that the Bible says, yeah, there's this whole philosophy of canceling debt and forgiveness. That's there. But there's also this accountability piece. And so how does your view on this match up with these components of Scripture? And here's the thing. And at the end of the conversation to say, hey, I love you, even though we disagree. That's a healthy way to, to exist as people. And it's harder and harder for us to do that. You see... And when we disobey that, we, we aren't willing to do the hard work of listening and trying to understand and even holding in tension uh, people who love Jesus and disagree on how to resolve important matters, holding that intention, then we become fractured. We become isolated. We, we fall into our, our own pocket, our own group of people, and we just listen to more of the people that have the same view as we do. And we become isolated in that way. And so then it's easier for us to say, well, that person way over there that I've never had a conversation with is likely a total idiot. And guess what they're doing? They're standing over here in the same way saying the same thing about you. But you're like, oh. So part of it is engaging in conversation and, and loving our neighbors enough to understand where they're coming from. And so Jonah experiences this storm. Why? Because God loves him. God hurls a storm at Jonah because he loves Jonah. He knows Jonah's ministry to the Ninevites is vitally important. But he also knows that Jonah's heart is as important. He wants Jonah to see that he can't run from the presence of God. That God wants to restore him to relationship with himself. And so he allows this really difficult thing to happen in his life. So he would have the opportunity to take stock and to consider He's attempting to make this trip to Tarshish, and the tempest, the tempest arrives with such strength that the ship, it says, threatened to break up. You see, God wanted him to walk in obedience, and even if it didn't make sense to Jonah, God wants him to walk in obedience. God has a plan for Nineveh, and God has a plan for Jonah. Now, thankfully, our experience doesn't lead typically to massive storms or weather events that, that circle right around on top of our house, right? They just, you know, the rain is pouring on your house and your house only, and the flooding is only happening in your house. But thankfully, we do experience consequences of our actions, right? And those consequences are little disciplinary actions that God is using to help us to say, okay, wait a second, is this working? Uh, Derek Kidner, a theologian, says, Sin sets up strains in the structure of life which can only end in breakdown. Generally speaking, liars are lied to, attackers are attacked, and those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So if we're designed to live for God, and if we live for something else, then our life begins to break down. In disobedience, we're essentially working against the owner's manual that was given to us. And God uses difficulty and hardship and struggle to help us to say, okay, hey, this isn't working. 
How do I need to realign my life with God's life? And again, this is not the storm that comes. It's not your fault. But every storm that comes, we should often ask, okay, what's happening? What patterns and rhythms am I experiencing? What's going wrong in my community and my culture that doesn't reflect the kingdom of God that I might be able to reorient myself and my community towards God so that we can experience the flourishing and joy that our community should experience? See, fortunately for Jonah, the storm was swift, and it called for an immediate response. But unfortunately for us, most storms take a long time to develop. And by the time that we're in the middle of the storm, it may be too late to make a change. Uh, Sin has been compared to radiation. It's not like a bullet or a knife that kills you right away. In fact, if you don't even know that you're exposed to it, you're not even aware. But then, once the symptoms come, it's too late. So here's a question, just kind of take a pause. What's the storm that you're facing right now in life? What's the area of anxiety, of frustration, of anger, of difficulty? What's that storm? It's probably different for almost everybody. There may be some storms that we have in common, but you have something that you're facing. What is that that's going on in your life that's causing you pain, that's causing you struggle? It's inviting you to think about that. What is it? Because this is an opportunity that we have not just to listen to a message about a guy in a boat, but to say, Lord, what are you saying to me? What is happening in my own life, in my own rhythm, that is causing me to be distressed? And how, Lord, do you want to teach me? Am I walking in disobedience? Have I been unfaithful? And if so, Lord, reveal to me through your word how I can be closer to you and to see what's happening. Are there people in your life that can say to you, Hey, I've noticed that the storm is that you're experiencing. And I want to share with you, I think I have an idea why. Not like Job's friends who are giving him all these crazy solutions, but to say, I'm with you in the storm. But have you ever thought about this? Do you have people in your life that are willing to encourage you? Being here is a great thing to listen to the word. This is an opportunity, again, to say, God, what is it that you're teaching me? How can I be more faithful? And how can I know that you're going to be with me throughout this entire storm? Um, Just to be specific, here's a little example of one thing that that I think causes storms in life. Um, One is unforgiveness. Jesus commands us to forgive, right? We know that. Forgive those who have hurt you. And he doesn't say, not once the person has apologized, you can forgive them. Um, He doesn't say, now wait till after you unload on them, then you forgive them. We're called to forgive when someone has hurt us right away. Now that means also that we might need to forgive and then keep on forgiving, certainly. But we're called to forgive. You see, if we don't forgive then we're allowing that person who hurt us to keep on hurting us. And here's the thing, that person may not even know why you're upset. You may have been hurt by them, and they're not even aware of it. And here's what happens. You're essentially giving control of your life to that person who hurt you. And they may not even know that they did it. And what what is the result of that? It determines whether or not you have joy. Because you're thinking about how you were hurt, this person didn't even know it, and you're frustrated and angry, and you're the one experiencing the difficulty. But when you forgive and keep on forgiving, then you're released from that. Another consequence is that you, you are reluctant to engage in relationship because you've been hurt in the past. And so you're losing out on great relationships that are right in front of you. They're right in front of you that you could take advantage of. But because someone else hurt you a long time ago and you haven't been able to forgive them, you're hesitant to open up yourself because you might get hurt again. 
That's understandable, but it's no way to live. Not when Jesus says, forgive. Now, this is also not saying that we shouldn't pursue just good consequences for actions, right? If someone, uh, you know, runs into your car, you can say, I forgive you, but you still call the insurance company and theirs has to pay. I know it's a, you know, what's, what do we call our state where we don't have a... No fault, yeah. That's not a great application right here. But if someone runs their car into your house, you say, you got to fix my house, man. But I forgive you for doing it. There's right and good consequences, and we can still pursue those. But, but part of it is a heart matter. Right? Here's a way that you can tell if you haven't forgiven someone. When their name comes up, or you see them, do you want to bless them? Do you want to encourage them? Or do you turn the other way? Or do you go, oh, let me tell you about that guy one time. I'll tell you what he did to me. Some cartoon character that grumbles like that. Do you have that stir up in your heart? Well, that's an indication that there's a storm in your life. And this is the Lord saying, hey, man, forgive. Forgive. And here's why you can forgive. Because you know what? You, Matt Miller, this is what God's speaking to me. You have done so many things to hurt and offend me and my law. You don't even deserve to be in a relationship with me. And yet I sent my son to die for you. And so in light of what Jesus did for you, bro, you need to forgive. It's a response of grace. And yeah, I know it's hurtful, but forgive. And then guess what? You're free from that. That little storm that's working in your life. It's simply a matter of saying, yes, Lord, I know that I need to be forgiven. And so therefore I'm going to forgive this person. We move on. We live in joy. Every moment. You just stop carrying that junk around. Life's too short. Right? You think about Barbara Harris. Right? I know she lived to be 85. But she lived with joy. She had experiences of hurt and difficulty in her life. But I'm telling you, if you encountered her at this church in that foyer, she was glad to see you. She came and gave you a hug. And how many people in this room have a perfumey smelling shoulder because of Barbara Harris? Uh, because she would come up and give you a hug. Because she was a forgiving person. She lived in joy despite the hurt that she had felt. She said, get away from me, Storm. I'm going to live in forgiveness. See, it just creates isolation. Instead of being able to, to work through the list, and this, there's another thing that forgiveness does. Like, there's a big group of people that you won't talk to. And guess what? There's a bunch of people that don't want to talk to you because you're always complaining about the people that hurt you. Instead of saying, you know what, man, I've been forgiven much. I'm going to forgive greatly. Boy, that's the kind of people that want to, people want to embrace and they want to be encouraged by. That's just one example. And so here's the thing. If you're feeling isolated, if you're feeling alone, if you're feeling angry, then take stock and say, Lord, is there somewhere, some root of bitterness in my life that you want to, you want to, you're pressing me right now to forgive? And just say, Lord, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to give me the strength to forgive that person who really, really hurt me. It doesn't mean you have to have your act together all the time, every time. But you're going to say right now, Lord, just please help me to forgive. You're just getting rid of the storm. And how many ways can we do that in life when we walk in obedience to God's commands? You see, we experience difficulty because of our own sinful choices. But God, through his word, gives us grace to return to him. He gives us grace. 
You see, I let God take control of my life. And this is not some like, hey, Jesus, take the wheel kind of theology. Right? It gets back to the covenant Lord of the universe, right? The sovereign God, the, the God is over all things. If he's in control of over everything, then he loves me and he allows me to experience consequences because he loves me. He has an important ministry for me, but he also has an important ministry in me. Which would be the kind of person who says to his commands, yes, Lord. And you see, when we do that in one area, when we say yes, Lord, in one area, we realize, well, God really wants the best for me. And I didn't see the big picture, but he did. And I can trust him. I can trust him to follow him, to walk in truth, and to do what he asked me to do. Even if it feels crazy, I can take a step of obedience. I can say, yes, Lord, I'm willing to do that. When God says, that gives me that feeling of, I, I want you to talk to that person person about me, that person who's our neighbor, who we don't connect with, who's on the other end of the spectrum, and God says, nudging us by the Holy Spirit, saying, I want you to talk to him or her about me, and then we respond in obedience, and sometimes people are open. Sometimes people say, wow, that just came at just the right time. Thanks for sharing with me that. And some people say, hey, no thanks, and that's fine. But what would happen if when God gave us that nudge just to move towards someone, someone who is different, someone who is disrespectful, someone who was whatever, fill in the blank, and we said, yes, Lord, I'm going to obey you. You see, obedience is success. We're not in charge of the result. We're not in charge of how people respond. God was going to have the Ninevites respond in a certain way. And he could do it with or without Jonah. But part of this whole ministry is to work on and in Jonah. In the same way, is to work on and in you and me. And it'd be a shame if we left this room and didn't apply something that God had said to us. Because you see... God gave Jesus uh, a command, if you will. He said, go down there and be among those people. Those people that can't get along. Those people that fight all the time. That create wars and, and damage one another. They had unjust societies. And if Jesus said, nah, I don't want to go. I'm going to go to Tarshish. Where would we be? But Jesus, to glorify the Father, purposefully, willingly, lovingly, came to live among you and I. To reveal the glory of God. So that we would have a picture of what forgiveness and reconciliation and hope really looks like. And because he came to us to be in relationship with us. He was the true and better Jonah to show us the will of God so that we can have restoration with God and with one another. What a glorious and beautiful ministry to be engaged in. It's just a million little decisions all day long to say, yes, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'll see what you're doing, but I'm going to trust you because you've called me here. You've called me to this community. You've called me in this family. You've called me to this neighborhood, this office, this classroom to bear witness to you through small acts of joy and of kindness. What a blessing it is to be engaged in that kind of ministry. So what's God asking you to do? Will you respond in obedience? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.